0: Today our our sermon is entitled Living Lead, it's the fourth part of the series of what it really is to follow Jesus, and the subtitle is Reclaiming Right Relationships, and while the sermon is applicable to all of us, I I really think, especially to fathers, that we ought to lead the way in reclaiming right relationships, and so that's what we're looking at today. Um, I want us to pray together as we dive into the word, so let's bow our heads. (laughs) Gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much for yet another opportunity to gather around your word, to gather as your people, to recognize that uh, we are yours and you are ours. Man, thank you. You've given us this bold invitation, like was mentioned earlier, to come boldly before your throne of grace, to find mercy and help in time of need. And Lord, we do need you. We're asking that you would speak to us We're asking that you would lead us. And I do want to pray a special prayer for fathers today. The fathers in our midst and the fathers that we are no longer with. um, Maybe we're separated by distance or um, something even more lasting. And yet we, we look forward to the day in which we will be reunited with our fathers. And so God, bless our fathers today. Fill them with your spirit, with the with the character of the Heavenly Father. And as we open up the Bible, please open up our hearts. We pray in Jesus' saving name what the family say. Amen. Amen. All right. Take your Bibles, go with me to the Gospel of Matthew. That's where we're headed. We've been there for the last several weeks now. Matthew chapter five today. We've been looking at this picture of what it is to really follow Jesus, what it is to be led by him. And uh, we, we've kind of picked Matthew four, five, six, and seven, because here uh, we find something that sandwiches the call to discipleship in the first place. We see uh, the call to discipleship in Matthew chapter four, verse 19, where Jesus says, "Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." So we ask that question, What does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, we look at what Jesus did in the wilderness at the beginning of Matthew four. And now we're looking at what Jesus taught on the mountainside in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so far, we've talked about this, uh, this discipline of the wilderness, right? Having quality, consistent time alone with God. We've also looked at uh, the idea of living by the Word of God. How Jesus was able to say, it is written, it is written, it is written. Because his heart and mind were so immersed in God's Word. And that's what it really looks like to live uh, as a disciple. Um, last week, we looked at the first half of the Beatitudes, and we saw how the life that's led by God is is able to find a blessing in, heaven, in having nothing. Um, and this week, we'll look at the second half of the Beatitudes. So there we are, Matthew chapter 5. And what we're going to find is that uh, being a disciple is not just... It doesn't just impact my relationship with God, but it actually relation, uh, it impacts my relationship with other people. So there we are, Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start... Um, in verses 6, we're just going to focus, not, sorry, not verse 6, verses 7 through 10. And I'll just read it through very quickly here. I'm sorry, 7 through 12. I'm reading from the New King James. It says, Blessed are the, what does your Bible say? Merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward where? In heaven. For, they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now we're going to dig into this a little bit more because I'm sure there is a point in there where your eyebrow kind of raised. Blessed are the what? Anyway, so we're going to take a look at that, but let me just kind of remind us what we're looking at when we talk about the Beatitudes. Um, there's a word that I want to introduce you to, and can, can anybody guess how to say this? Inclusio. Okay, so this is the, the Bible nerd fact for the day, okay? Inclusio, this is a, this is a term, um, it's, a, it's actually a literary device that you kind of see patterns in scripture, and an inclusio is kind of like a, where you have bookends or brackets around a certain book or around a certain passage that are parallel to each other. Um, And, uh, for example, like at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, you see that uh, the angel promises to Mary, hey, they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us, right? And then at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, God says, uh, you know, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the world. So, at the beginning of Matthew... God is with us. At the end of Matthew, Jesus says, I am with you. And so, in between is included this common thread, this common theme, that God is with us through the presence of Jesus. Okay? There's this idea of inclusio. Do you guys get the idea now? Inclusio? Okay. Um, So, like, the beginning of Revelation says, uh, behold, I come with the clouds. Right? And at the end of Revelation, surely I am coming quickly. So the common theme throughout Revelation you would expect, if those are the bookends, if those are the brackets, then revelation is all about not beasts and lions and tigers and bears on oh my you know. But revelation is about Jesus is coming and he's coming quickly. Amen. So, in the Beatitudes, there's actually an inclusio. Let's take a look. At the beginning of the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then at the end of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the what? Is the kingdom of heaven. So you would expect, if those are your brackets just for that passage, you would expect that everything in there, everything in the Beatitudes, is about how to possess the kingdom of heaven. How to truly be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. How to truly have a relationship where God is your king. Okay, so that's what the Beatitudes are all about. Now it's really interesting, just kind of thinking a little bit more microscopically, is that the beatitudes? There's an inclusio within the inclusio. All right. <laughs> now, notice this. In Matthew five six, it says, "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled." Blessed are those. In verse ten, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Very interesting. So even there, as you're looking there in Matthew chapter 5, you've got this bookends of the kingdom in Matthew 3, or verse 3, and in verse 10. But then even within that, there's bookends of righteousness. So that everything in between, the implication should be that everything in between, between verse 6 and verse 10, has something to do with living righteously. Living in righteousness. Now the question is, what in the world is righteousness? Right? What is righteousness? When you think of righteousness... What words come to mind? What meanings come to mind? How would you describe that to your five-year-old? Doing right, yeah? Okay, what else, what else comes to mind? Or is that pretty much cover it? Is there more? Doing right, kind of holding a standard, um, living according to a certain expectation or norm that is right, yeah? Okay, this is good. And I I, I wanna, um, yeah, that's, I, I think that's the essential dynamic to it. But can I expand that a little bit? Because I think that's, that's the picture, but it's not the complete picture. And maybe the, the complete picture is to realize that we are not just human doings. We are human what? Beings, right? And so righteousness is not just about right doing, but right being. What do I mean by that? Maybe it's this, being in right relationships being in right relationships think about this when you think about the standards of righteousness those standards of righteousness only find meaning as they impact your relationships so to be righteous doesn't mean that um, i brush my teeth three times a day those are good things to do but it has nothing to do well maybe it does have something to do with your relationships (laughs) Uh, uh, anyways i think you get it there are certain things that are good to do but it's not necessarily righteous until you see how it impacts your relationships, right? And so right doing is only significant as it relates to right being, being in right relationships. And so here's the thing, the do's and don'ts of righteousness only find their significance in how it impacts your relationships. Now think about the 10 commandments. This is the standard of righteousness and that righteousness is very relational, right? The first half of the 10 commandments is about your relationship with, with God, right? Um, have no other gods before me. Have no, make no graven images. Don't take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath because he's your creator. Right? That's all in re- right relationship with God. And then the last half of the commandments has to do with how to embrace right relationships with each other. Honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not steal, kill, bear false witness. I think I'm mixing up the order. Um, commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet. Those kinds of things. And so all of those things have to do with vertical righteousness and horizontal righteousness now with the beatitudes check this out with the beatitudes no different when jesus is laying the foundational principles of the kingdom how to possess the kingdom of god how to how to be in his kingdom he's actually doing those very two dynamics too um the first half of the beatitudes relationship with god the second half which is what we're focusing on today relationships where with each other with each other And so that's why when we're turning to uh, this second half of the Beatitudes of what it means to live led, we're actually going to see that these things in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 are actually impacting how to have right relationships with each other. Okay. And so what we're going to see is this simple truth that, um, oh man, I didn't even put it up. What we're going to see is the simple truth that the life that is led by God reclaims right relationships. That's why we're talking about reclaiming right relationships today. So we're going to go ahead, start digging in, and we're going to find three expressions of right relationships and also one expectation about right relationships. So let's go there quickly. Um, verse 7. Verse 7, again, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 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 When was the last time you used that word, mercy? Maybe this morning. Actually, we were talking about tender mercies even. Wow, this is cool. Uh, so mercy, merciful. I don't know what kinds of pictures come to your mind. Um, but in Jesus' day, mercy was something that was uh, more of an exception than a norm. Even within the religious leaders and, and their influence, there is a quote that I um, put here on the screen from a, a a commentary on this passage. It said this, Mercy was lacking in Pharisaic righteousness. You know, the Pharisees kind of prided themselves on living righteously, right? Right relationships, but there, there was actually more focused on right doing. It said, Mercy was lacking in Pharisaic righteousness. Sympathy was killed by the theory that all suffering was penalty of special sin, a theory which fostered a pitiless type of Righteousness. Do you understand the kind of mentality there? Uh, Someone's in need, but they're in need because they deserve it. And so instead of extending mercy that way and compassion that way, they're pitiless. They're like, ah, well, you're getting what you deserve. That kind of thing. And that's, that's not righteousness at all. It was a pitiless type of righteousness there. But Jesus is saying, hey, blessed are you when you are merciful. When you actually do extend mercy Uh, The word itself, it has very deep and broad meanings. It comes from an Old Testament concept. Uh, Let's see if you can say this with me. Chesed. Can you say that Hebrew word? Chesed. And then you can uh, apologize for spitting on your neighbor. Um, But the the idea there, chesed, is it's the kind of love, it's the kind of faithfulness that is related to a commitment. Um, That the term is covenant faithfulness. So maybe in the Old Testament you've seen this word loving kindness before or steadfast love. Have you seen that before? It's talking about covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness. It's a commitment or promise in relationship. It's a mercy that shows pity. It's a mercy that shows compassion, not because you have to, but because you see that that person is part of you. That person is part of your family. That's a brother or a sister in need. It's the kind of compassion that shows love, not because that person deserves it, but because that person is connected to you. So when God shows loving compassion to us, loving kindness, it's not because we deserve it, but it's because He's connected to us. That's beautiful. Um, In the New Testament, this word is used only one other time. And it's in Hebrews chapter... Oh man, I put that out totally out of order. Okay, so it's it's in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. It says, Therefore, it was necessary for Him, speaking of Jesus, to be made in every respect like who like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. This is what Jesus demonstrates. When he's demonstrating mercy, it's not because he has to, or it's not because you and I deserve it, but it's because he considers us brothers and sisters that's covenant faithfulness that that shows mercy because there's solidarity. There's an identification. Hey, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. And so the point is that if you and I are going to be led by God, that we're going to be led in paths of mercy. We're going to be led to demonstrate Christ-like mercy that doesn't just give people what they need when they deserve it, but it gives people what they need because they're my brother and they're my sister. It's the kind of of mercy that recognizes family ties, just like Jesus did. And when you think about it, I was thinking about what are the times that I've used mercy? Uh, When I I was younger, I used to play this game where I'd hold someone's hands and I'd try to crush them until they say, mercy. You remember that? Yeah? Uh, last week we were at the park. We were playing games and stuff at the picnic and stuff. And and Derek, you know, after this game of, of kickball where it was just the big kids against the little kids, Derek says, I'm showing them mercy. <laughs> when we think about mercy, it's usually in terms of what we're not going to do to people. Right? I'm not going to crush your hands and tear them off. I'm not going to kick the ball so hard that it smacks you in the face. Right? But But really... Mercy is not just about what we don't do to people, the harm that we don't inflict on people, even if they deserve it. Um, But mercy is spoken in the positive, right? Um, Actually, Luke chapter 10 is a perfect example. It's the Good Samaritan. Maybe you know that story. You know, after Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan, you know, the Levite passed, the priest passed, but the Good Samaritan, he stops, he helps the man who is in need. And then the guy that actually is listening to this story, he says, oh man, that man showed mercy to his neighbor, Mercy. Mercy is showing compassion. It's showing, it's recognizing a need, whether it's physical need, emotional need, spiritual, social, and actually moving to act to fulfill that need. Not, again, not because that person deserves it, but because, like the Good Samaritan, he saw, hey, that's a brother. Even though we're different, we're across cultural lines, we're across geographical lines, this is a person that if I were in their shoes, I would want that kind of need met too. So that's what mercy is. And the promise there in the Beatitude, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall... What's the promise? What's the assurance? They shall obtain mercy, which is an especially sweet promise. If you know, if you've ever been in shoes where you're giving mercy, you're giving compassion over and over and over again, but it's not given in return, this promise is especially sweet because whether or not others extend mercy to you, We have the assurance of God's all-sufficient mercy. Hey, you're going to have my mercy. Um, That's the beautiful thing. So when we're led, when we're led by God, um, the first step in reclaiming right relationships is to commit to identifying one another as having family ties, having family bonds, and saying, if I were in their shoes, I'd want that too. and uh, and actually identifying ways to extend compassion and mercy to each other. All right, so that's uh, blessing uh, number one, blessed are the merciful. Verse 8, verse 8, here we are. Blessed are the, what are the next few words in your Bible? Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart. Remember, these are blessed states. These are happy states. These are enviable conditions to be in. And Jesus says, hey, you're blessed when you have a pure heart. You know, being a goody-two-shoes and stuff isn't so bad after all, you know? I mean, doing the right thing for the right reason, that is a blessing. And I love that it says, um, blessed blessed are the pure in heart. It's not just pure in um, doing the right things outwardly, but blessed are the pure in heart. They're clean, they're unsoiled, they're guiltless, they're innocent, they're sincere. They're upright, where it really counts, where it really counts, and that's in the heart, the hidden person. My question, though, is how in the world does pure in heart, blessed are the pure what does that have to do with right relationships, right? How does my being pure in heart affect my ability to reclaim right relationships? Isn't that just something that is just between me and God, my purity of heart? Isn't that just something between me and God? Well, maybe here's the reality. Maybe the reality is that the kinds of channels that we let our thoughts really dwell upon actually impact the way we interact with and view each other. Have you thought about that? Think about this. Uh, Maybe if, if you've ever let your thoughts kind of float towards... ...noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy... Think about such things, right? Let your mind meditate and dwell upon such things. But here's the truth. This isn't just about me enjoying personal piety, or it's not just about me having a personally holy life, but it's actually about me being able to extend righteousness to others. As I dwell upon pure themes, I can enjoy quality relationships with other people. Um, look at a verse with me. Hold, hold a finger in Matthew chapter 5 and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians. This I don't know if this is really sinking in because this took a long time for me to uh, to really process that my, my purity of heart, the way I am uh, changed in my mind, actually impacts my relationships. 2 uh, Corinthians. It's a New Testament passage. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then you're into the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 16. I was reading this earlier this week with some friends. If you're there, go ahead and say, I found it. All right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Powerful passage. You know, when you're talking about just the the power of the gospel, verses 14 through 21 just articulate the the impact of the gospel in in incredible ways. Um, But when it comes down, I'll start in verse 15. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15. It says, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Amen, right? Jesus died for you? Hey, you're living for him. But then look at verse 16, the impact. What, What does it mean for us to live for him? Notice, verse 16. Therefore, from now on, because we've died to self and now we're living for Jesus, how does that impact things? We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Very interesting. Therefore, because we live for Jesus, we don't view others the same way. Because we've been changed by God, now the way we interact with others is even different. How in the world? Just as we don't see Jesus in human terms, oh, he was just a man... But now he's the risen Christ. We see him as the glorified Christ, right? That's that's what the rest of verse 16 says. In the same way, we don't view each other as, oh man, that man is a sinner. That girl is useless. That person won't do any good in this world. No, no. Instead, we view them according not to their past, but according to their potential. And when we are pure in heart, that impacts our ability to see people purely. Are we following this? Yeah? I mean, this... This is actually pretty incredible. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Maybe this will hit you like three years down the road, and you're like, oh. (laughs) Um, Because the gospel changes things. There are people, I, I would imagine, I would venture to say, there are people in your life that you wish you could reclaim right relationships with. But it's hard because of the way you see them. It's hard because of the way they've portrayed themselves in the past. And yet the gospel gives us the ability to see them differently, even if they're not acting differently. So we view people not according to their flesh, but according to their spiritual potential. There's a diagnostic question that I want us to see here. uh, But let's go back to Matthew 5 and just see how this kind of idea is fleshed out even more. Verse 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's actually the promise. Um, It's, yeah, we'll eventually see God way beyond the blue. We'll be able to see Him face to face where there will be no more night. Amen. Um, But I think that when we actually engage the pure heart, when we actually embrace the pure heart, we actually end up being able to see God in the present tense, too. Um, Let me see if I can explain this some more. (laughs) I think there's a a text here that we put up. Um, Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4. This is actually really cool. So, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Right? This is a question. How, How can people approach God's presence? How can actually people live in God's presence? Verse 4 gives the answer. The one who has clean hands and what? And a pure heart. And a pure heart. See, the pure in heart actually live as though they are currently in the presence of God. The pure in heart, though they live in an impure world, they're able to see God wherever they are. And so when we're pure in heart and we actually are able to see people according to their God-given potential, we can actually see God in them now. We don't have to define them according to their past. We don't have to define them according to their past failures or hurts or whatever. We can actually see them according to the gospel. Whoa. So let me ask you this question. When, If there have ever been times when you haven't seen God in your life, or if there have ever been times where you haven't seen God in your relationships, here's a diagnostic question. What was the train of your thoughts? What had been the habit of your thoughts prior to? Uh, let me see if I can say that differently. Um, when we feel like we don't see God in our lives, or if God isn't present in our relationships, what have we been allowing our minds and hearts to dwell on? If you've ever come through a situation where you were just like in a really very negative environment or you were um, being uh, just, I don't know, maybe you're reading a, a book that was just kind of very tense or, or um, yeah, dark, I would say, or, or a movie or a TV show or whatever, you'll notice, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is, I'm the only one, but you'll notice that uh, the interactions that you have thereafter, they're colored by that tension. They're colored by that argument that you just saw on the screen. Um, this happened. I mean, I don't watch basketball very often, but I actually saw a live game. It was the last, you know, game five of the finals and stuff between the Cavs and Warriors and stuff. But there, there was some chippiness, you know. There was, there was some going, did you see that? Yeah, there was some going at it, some jawing on the court and stuff like that. And after the game was done, you know, we took a commercial break. or It was during halftime, and we took a commercial break, and I found myself kind of getting chippy with my kids. I'm like, what's going on here? You know? What are you? So here's the thing. Here's the thing. The things that you allow your minds to dwell on, they impact directly the quality of your relationships. So if you're having a hard time seeing Jesus in your relationships, ask yourself, what have I been allowing my mind to dwell on? Okay. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah? So reclaiming right relationships. It, it, reclaiming right relationships. When we're led by God, we'll be interacting with others in pure ways and out of pure motives because we've been keeping and guarding a pure heart. Alright, so blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. What's next? Verse 9. Verse 9. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Do you guys know peacemakers in your life? Are there peacemakers around? Are you a peacemaker? Um, God is calling us to be peacemakers. Um, but when, when you think of the word peace, what pictures come to mind? What other uh, descriptions come to mind for you Hammock on a beach, sipping some lemonade maybe no okay, maybe that 's just me <laughs> the peace sign a little i don 't know what, what kinds of things come to you so peace peace feels good right peace feels very very good it 's a feeling of of serenity, of tranquility, like everything 's right in the world. <sighs> you know give me my lemonade. <laughs> uh, But here's the thing, the peace that the Bible talks about is actually much bigger than that. The peace that we think of is the result of the Bible's peace, okay? When the Bible talks about peace, maybe you've heard of the word shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. It's actually referring to a sense of wholeness, where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. Can you think about seasons in your life where everything was right where it should be? where relationships were as they should be, where, where dynamics in your life, circumstances where nothing was missing and everything was whole and complete, that's peace. okay? And that's what results in that feeling of tranquility, of the ah, sense, right? And so when we're talking about wholeness, biblical peace, it's when all the essential parts are joined together and it results in a sense of security and safety, of happiness. And so... When Jesus says here in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, we're talking about people who make wholeness happen. People who bring things together. So in other words, to be a peacemaker, it means that the sum total of your impact in life, the sum total of your interactions with people, it tends more towards bridge building and harmony making rather than bridge burning and harmony destroying peacemakers are beautiful people to have in your life. And it's even more beautiful to be that kind of person, too. It's a description of those who actively pursue, not just I need to have peace in my life, but they actively pursue, how can I help others have peace in my life? How can I help people find wholeness and completeness? Not just in their own experience, but wholeness and completeness with God. You know, this is the only time that particular word is ever used in the entire New Testament peacemakers. Um, it's, it's the adjective, it blessed are the peacemakers. But the verb of it is used one other time in Scripture. It happens to be in Colossians 1.20, and it's used in reference to guess who? To Jesus himself, right? Uh, it says in Colossians 1.20, And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. Reconciled, bring, brought everything together to himself, made it whole. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth, By means of what? By means of Christ's blood on the cross. This is the only one who is able to bring about reconciliation. He is the ultimate peacemaker. Jesus, he's not only the merciful high priest, he's not only the one who had no sin, right? The pure in heart. He's also the peacemaker. No wonder it says here in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? They shall be called sons of God. When we're peacemakers, we're like chips off the old block. When we're bringing people together and making things whole in people's lives, it's a perfect reflection of what God does in our lives. So we're sons of God there. We're children of God. We are the tangible expression, the tangible extension of His love poured out on Calvary. Christ's blood on the cross. No wonder... I want to be a chip off the old block. You know, I talk about Father's Day and stuff. I don't know. People say that I look like my dad. Maybe I do. If I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. People say I make jokes like my dad. I'll take it too. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but here's the thing. If we could be sons and daughters of God, that when people see us, they see what God does in their life. Peacemaker. Peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So we've got these three expressions of reclaiming right relationships. Blessed are the, what was it? The uh, merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. But now there's this one expectation that when we reclaim right relationships, this is kind of the odd twist at the end. Blessed are the what? The persecuted. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. There it is in verse 10. Blessed are the perse- those who are persecuted For righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kind of ironic that peacemakers would have to expect persecution. But sometimes in our bridge building, there will be people who refuse it. Sometimes in our extension of mercy, there will be people who scorn it. Sometimes in our efforts to guard a pure heart and to view others in a pure way, there will be others who throw that out. And as a result, they'll even end up being antagonistic towards those who try to reclaim those right relationships. This is the honest expectation that the pursuit of this kind of righteousness may not always win the applause of man, but the promise is, according to verse 10, that the kingdom of God is theirs. Look at it again. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for right relationship's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I love that. For theirs is. Not for theirs shall be, but for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's in the present tense, meaning that when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, when you've been seeking to build bridges and be a peacemaker, when you've been seeking to extend mercy, when you've been seeking to be pure in heart, and you're persecuted as a result of it, You're made fun of because of it. You're just kind of ignored because of it. You're blessed, and that's an enviable position. Why? Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. That means God truly is your king. Present tense. I love that. We have the approval of God even in spite of the disapproval of men in those moments. The pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of right relationships is not always the popular cause. Maybe you've tried. Maybe you've tried to bring up a a conversation in your, uh, your, your family that was like 15 years buried, right? And you tried, you tried to build that bridge, but it was just like uh, rejected, refused, and it made the relationship even worse. And as a result, you're like on the outside of things. <laughs> what in the world? How did I... When you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, God says, hey, I am your king. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. The life that is led by God pursues right relationships reclaims right relationships how by extending mercy by guarding purity by building peace even at the cost of persecution are we willing to be led by god in that way to reclaim right relationships question i want to ask today is uh, which of these which of these let's see if we can put them up here which of these four dynamics of right relationships which of these four do you feel the need for extra grace in? Which of these four do you want to see more of? Well, maybe I'll say, which of these three? do <laughs> you? We don't want to be suckers for, or gluttons for, uh, for uh, hurt. and pain. But um, which, which of these things do you feel the need for extra grace in? You know, maybe as you're thinking and just kind of taking inventory of your own heart, of your own relationships, there are relationships that you long to reclaim. There are relationships... In your household there are relationships in in your in your workplace in your in your school environment that man you felt estranged i wish we could have what we had before you want to reclaim those which of these expressions of righteousness do you feel the need for in that relationship do you feel the need for more mercy more purity the ability to be able to make peace um And I'll just say this, as we look at these things and we sense that need for it, the reality is we can't give mercy or purity or peace unless we've received mercy, unless we've received purity, and unless we've received God's peace. And so really, as we're just kind of taking away, as you're walking away and saying, God, I need more mercy, I would just encourage you, fix your eyes on the merciful high priest who identifies us as brothers and sisters, If you're you're wondering, God, how am I ever going to identify with that person who needs mercy, but I don't want to give them that mercy, you know? Um, Continue to look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the one who identifies with us. He'll give you the ability to identify with others. Maybe you're thinking, purity. Man, Lord, how can I even, in the kind of world that I live in, the kind of environment that I live in, how can I maintain purity? Continue to look to the one who knew no sin and became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him you're wondering, how can I be a peacemaker? Continue to look to the one who is the ultimate peacemaker. Look to Jesus, who is the merciful high priest, the one pure in heart, the great peacemaker, and all at the cost of his fatal persecution.